And you are in tune to dublab.com. My name is Elvin, Elvin Estella. I also go as DJ Nobody. And we are here with a very special guest doing an interview, Mr. David Axelrod, one of our favorite producers slash arrangers. So I guess we'll just uh, go ahead and launch right into the whole story, uh, the David Axelrod story. I guess the first question is, um, how did you get involved in production, composing, and arranging before your, uh, your gig at Capitol Records? Uh, I was working, I got into, uh, got a gig at uh, a place called Southwest Distributing Company, which was a very small distributor in Los Angeles. It used to be on Pico Boulevard, it was called Distributors Row, where all the independent distributors were at that time, and uh, I became a promotion man for them, and I really did pretty good. <laughs> And from that, I went to a place called Motif Records. I met this guy, Jack Devaney. He was the head of Cashbox out here. At one time, Cashbox was his biggest billboard. And they had a lot of clout. And people would ask him, I need such a person. Do you know anybody? And uh, he sent me in. And Motif, I started producing records. Okay. And what year was that? That was in 1956. Okay. Motif Records. Yeah. Motif was a tax dodge for one of the 10 wealthiest guys in the state of California. His name was Milton W. Vetter. I'm smiling and laughing because he had nowhere to go. The money just came in. He owned the world. He and his brother owned the world's largest surface oil deposits, which were up near Bakersfield. And they leased them out, mainly to Shell, Shell Oil. And uh, he didn't have to do anything. I mean, it just came in millions and millions of dollars. So he, somebody awesome talked him. Yes, somebody talked him about going into the record business, and uh, I think we had to make three or four albums a year for it to be legit. What were the first few productions for Motif? What kind of music was it? Well, they had already lined up before I got there. This guy Max Albright to do a traditional jazz album, and then I came in there and uh, I was hanging around at a studio called Audio Arts. It was on Melrose, and a terrific guy by the name of George Fields owned it. He was a good musician. George uh, was not only a good engineer, but he could play. He was a harmonica, and just an incredible harmonica player. Because I remember when I was at Capitol, later he made an album of Bach on the harmonica for Angel Records, which was, you know, that's the Capitol. Uh, it's the uh, Angel is the EMI classical label okay. in the United States and he taught me the board and that's how I learned what the, you know how to work with engineers awesome and uh, after Motif Motif was in, was Los Angeles was it based yeah. in Los Angeles and how what was the transition like from Motif to Capital well uh, it wasn't a giant transition because first I went to Hi-Fi Records and there I was really started to make some money. Okay. What were the what were a few acts that you produced for Hi-Fi? Arthur Lyman, who oh, was nice. he was gigantic then. And the owner was this another guy that was independently wealthy, very wealthy guy. And he was a, he was his own engineer, terrific engineer. So uh, he couldn't get Arthur to do Taboo Volume Two. Taboo had been this gigantic selling record. More of like an exotica type artist. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. what he was. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it was great because I'd never been to Hawaii. 
and we went to Hawaii, first class. Everything was first class. It was just great. I was going, wow, this is getting better and better all the time. I'm really starting to like the record business. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, if I could get Arthur to do Taboo Volume 2, I could start a label called Hi-Fi Jazz, which I was always bugging him to let me do. So I got Arthur. I talked Arthur into doing Taboo Volume 2, and I got to start Hi-Fi Jazz. Awesome. And then from there, you eventually uh, then I made your way to Capitol. Yeah. Okay. And was Cannonball Adderley the first artist that you worked with on Capitol, or were there a few before? No, they were giving me all kinds. of. They weren't sure, you know, yet. They kept telling me to go home. <laughs> Except I loved it. You know, uh -huh. the Capital was the label for me. All the artists that seemed that most of the artists that I really dug were on Capital. Nat Cole was the first album I ever bought was Nat Cole. Mm -hmm. One of the hippest, nicest guys you'll ever meet in your life. I just really liked that man a lot. And he was uh I met him I was down in the in the in the hall where the studios are, and his producer, Lee Gillette, they were incredibly close. And Lee called me over and he said, Dave, I want you to meet Nat Cole. And he put out his hand and he went, Dave, how are you? Like I'd known him for 120 years. <laughs> and I was just stunned. I could like, you know, I was like tongue-tied. Man, he's just, I mean, it's Nat Cole. And he, he knew. He knew. So he was talking. You know, he said, oh, you're going to love it here. This is a great place to work. And I just said, cool, thank you. You know, like, mm -hmm. I didn't know what to do. About three weeks later, there was a, a record room. A re there was a, in the brown. There was a brown derby on Vine Street, and they had a restaurant called the Record Room. It was where a, a big meeting place for record business people mm -hmm. at lunchtime. And I walked in, and I was cutting across the room when that voice, you know, his, his voice is unmistakable. Goes, "Wow, big time producer from Capitol." And I turned around, and it's Nat Cole. And he's in this booth with these two guys. And there's all these papers spread all over, so they're doing business, undoubtedly. And he stuck out his hand. So I shook his hand, and then he introduced me. And he goes, this is so-and-so, this is David Axelrod. How did he remember my name? I never forgot that. What an incredible man. I love that man to this awesome. day. It is. Awesome is the word. And, and that uh, was it. That was, what year did you start at Capitol? 64. 64. I signed a contract with them on January 19th. Of 1964. A Monday. Yeah. And the contract then was that just to be an onboard producer for different acts on the label? For whatever they wanted me to do. Whatever they wanted you to do. Sweet. And there was a con there was a There was a paragraph in that concert that I later, in that contract rather, that I learned to hate. You, any word, any synonym, anything, pertains to creativity is in that paragraph if I sneezed they owned it <laughs> the sound of that sneeze it's amazing so any sort of production that you were part of the capital itself owned it yeah wow. what you're playing right now is owned by MPL Sir Paul and John Eastman yeah Sir Paul and John Eastman anyway uh, Sir Paul bought a company called Morley Music from EMI. I have no idea why they sold it to him. But that was their ASCAP firm. 
and I was in ASCAP, and this, he owns this music. God, that's crazy. Isn't it? So after joining Capitol in 1964, um, when was the first work with Cannonball? Uh, or how did you meet Cannonball, I guess you could say? I first met him in 1962 in a bar. It was around 12.30 in the afternoon. I was with a very dear friend of mine, a guy named Jimmy Talbert. He had come by, and I was working for uh, a small label called Plaza Records. And we went across into this bar, and in came the singer Ernie Andrews. And Jimmy Talbert and I had known Ernie Andrews forever. And Ernie was with Cannonball at the time. Cannonball wanted a vocalist, and Ernie was it. So he introduced us. And when he introduced us, Cannon went, Aha! The Fox. I knew our paths would cross someday. It's very interesting. That's exactly what he said, too. Upon first meeting you. Yeah. Now, he was talking about an album that I made with Harold Land called The Fox, which was a terrific album, and that was on Hi-Fi Jazz. And uh, so when Capitol signed him, they asked him who did he want to produce. He could use somebody in-house, he could use somebody from outside Capitol, he could use whoever he wanted. And he said, get me David. And they thought there was a great guy there, great, great arranger, great producer, his name was David Cavanaugh. And they thought that's who he meant. Mm -hmm. So the president of the company, Alan Livingston, looked at the vice president, Boyle Gilmore, and he goes, get Kavanaugh. And Ka I could just see Cannon now going like this with his hand. No, 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 no. And he went, no, David Axelrod. So Alan said, get David Axelrod. <laughs> and Boyle Gilmore called me, and I came up there, and that's uh, when we started. That's how it happened. And uh, how did Mercy, Mercy, Mercy come about? He uh, was at Shelly Mann's. The drummer. And he, yeah. He had a club here, a good jazz club called The Manhole. It was on Coenga and uh, Selma. And Cannon had been talking to me about this uh, this song that Joe Zavano had written. And he said on the road they were getting a terrific reaction. And sure enough, when they did it at Shelly Mann's, the whole place went daffo. So I said, well, you know, always a good sign. Let's cut it. So we were doing an album, because we always cut an album, not a single. So in the album is Mercy, Mercy, Mercy. Great, and it was a big success, the song. Oh, God. Probably one of the, probably the biggest song, caught, jazz song of the 60s, right? Yes, it was, and it caught everybody by shock, because no one's expecting that from jazz, yeah. you know, a single. And for one of your first projects on Capitol, this is a pretty big success for it a young wasn't, producer. No, no, this is Mercy Mercy was '67, and I oh, okay, had yeah, a lot right. of hits. Okay, so you worked there for a while, but it was a definite turning point for for yourself and Cannonball as well. Oh, sure. All right, so and man, Joe Zavanil too. Oh, he wrote the tune. Sure. Yeah. All right, let's take a listen to Mercy 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 here on DevLab.com with David Axelrod. It's Cannonball Ederly, a composition by Joe Zavanil.
And we are back here on dublab.com. Special guest David Axelrod in the studio with us. Just finished listening to uh, his very seminal 1967 release, Mercy, 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 as done by Cannonball Adderley, produced at Capitol Records and written by Joe Zamano. Um, around the same time you were working with Cannonball, you were also working with Lou Rawls, right? Yeah. And how did that come about? Well, they knew I had done a lot of rhythm and blues. As a matter of fact, when I went up to see Boyle Gilmore, my appointment with him, he was the head of A&R, a wonderful man. And the business was much different than it is today. At that time, you had to know music because the first thing he did was he opened up a drawer, took out a score, and he cut out the uh, sections where the rhythm section was so I couldn't see the chords. Mm -hmm. And it's a whole orchestra. And he said, name me the chord in this bar. So I did. He said, tell me the chord in this bar. I did. He said, excellent. Put the score back. Because you have to look down at all the instruments and tell them what the chord was that they're playing. So uh, everybody there, all the producers, had to know music. That has seriously changed. But uh, we're not doing a crusade, are we? <laughs> Or a lecture. The thing is, uh, he had a Jimmy Witherspoon album I had done. I loved Spoon. We made a lot of records and we had a lot of fun. I had a lot of adventures with Jimmy. And he said, I would like you to record Lou Rawls, very similar to this. But Lou is not quite as much into the blues as Jimmy Witherspoon is, as you'll hear. So get some of his records, you know, buzz the library and have him bring you up Lou Rawls because you're going to record them. And uh, I did. Nice. For about two years, and we were making some damn good records, but nothing was happening. And then I got this idea that we could get, we should start a black division, get black promotion people. For capital? Of course. Mm -hmm. And I went to Voile and I said, listen, I have this idea. And if we can't do it, then I might as well just quit. So, and I told him what it was. And he said, you know, that is a good idea. And he called in the, his colleague, the vice president of promotion, a guy named Bill Talent, who really loved rhythm and blues. So he thought it was great. And they both look, are looking at each other and they go, Alan, Alan Livingston, president of the company, one of the hippest guys you will ever know in your life. I love that man. Mm -hmm. If he was still the president of Capitol, I would still be there. That's how hip he was. And uh, as usual, his attitude was, try it. He said, I've never thought that the majors could get into rhythm and blues, but that doesn't mean you can't try it. Let's see what happens. Bam. The very next album was Lou Rawls Live. A smash hit. Gigantic hit. And we just kept doing them. At that time, you had to do three a year. Three albums a year. Yes. <laughs> I noticed that a lot of the uh, Cannonball records, as well as Lou Rawls records, those are recorded live as well. Um, what was it about recording the bands live that, that, was, that was something you I enjoyed doing? I started doing, yes, I did. I did that because uh, I came up with this idea of, you know, everybody used to bring guests into the studios. I mean, when it was, Dean Martin recorded, I once dropped off to 
see Jimmy Bowen, my, just a wonderful guy, Jimmy Bowen. And he was the producer of Dean Martin and Sinatra at Reprise. And uh, there were people all over the studio, but I wanted it set up like it was a club. Mm -hmm. And I told the art department to set up lights with gels, and they knew how to do that. Capital had a great art department. And we turned it into a club. And I used to go, before we were going to start, I would go, welcome to Club Capital. <laughs> Have a good time. There's plenty of free booze, food, and make as much noise as you want. Just remember, though, this is a record date, so we might do things two times, maybe three. Mm -hmm. Just try to get a live, as live an yeah. atmosphere as you can get. But I told them, just relax and have a good time. And that's what we did. Nice. It shows you can really hear the musicians are just having a good time. Or well, more what I did, they weren't down on the floor. I put them up on risers. So it was like a club. Like I mean, a stage. Up like on a stage, yes. And uh, Bowen called me once. He was going to record Sammy Davis Jr. And he wanted to do it that way. So I told him exactly what I had done because Jimmy had always been so good to me. Mm -hmm. That's great. And uh, from working with Cannonball and Lou Rawls, how did you eventually start uh, writing or uh, producing your solo albums? Well, I had always been arranged records. Mm -hmm. And then uh, my manager, Lenny Poncher, terrific guy and a great manager. He and there was a producer at, at uh, Reprise named uh, Dave Hassinger. They got an idea of doing a rock mass. And I had gotten home about 5 o'clock in the morning from Capitol because I, I was recording the night before. And it was a Friday night and it was Saturday. And Lenny called me about 9 in the morning. And he said, can you write a rock mass? And I said, I can write anything. And I hung up. And I called him later about 1 in the afternoon when I woke up. And I said, what the hell did you, what did you want? So he asked me, he said, I asked you if you could write a rock mass. I said, yeah, it's no problem. He said, but it's for reprise. So on the following Monday, I went to Boyle Gilmore and I said, listen, I can write this album for reprise. Is it all right? And he went, it'll be all right, providing they say that you appear through the courtesy of Capitol Records and that we publish it. And they went for it. As a matter of fact, a record just came out called David Axelrod, The Warner's Years. Uh, it's just out now. Days. And uh, it's the Electric Prunes. And uh, actually, at the session, Pride is on the album as well. There's uh, only two guys on the mass that were from the from the Electric Prunes. Were you aware of the Electric Prunes before you had de uh, decided to do the project with them? Or was no, it, a band heard it wasn't my kind of music. And was it true that the band, most of the band had left by this point when you had taken no, over? they left after. Oh. I didn't take over anything. Okay, I never knew the whole That's story. That's a fallacy. It's such a, it's such a Everybody weird called story. him the producer. I didn't produce that. David Hassinger did. What I told them, though, was after we had finished the first session, I went, listen, man, this is going to take 50 years. This is a career. I can't do this. We've got to get musicians in here. At first, it was the band trying to play the, the parts. Yeah, they couldn't do it. The parts I wrote were too difficult for them. So uh, 
The bass player could sight read very good. And I liked the drummer, Quint. He could really play, but he had already told Lenny he was leaving the group anyway. So uh, Hassinger called in these uh, session guys. And they became the Electric Prunes. For these two albums. Yeah, for that album. And we used different guys on uh, Release of Vanilla. Release of Vanilla. Oh, so that's how that happened. And how was what was the Pride record? That was a name. A guy named Joe Sutton owned the uh, the name Pride, and he made a deal with a guy named Mike Maitland, a what terrific guy, who was the president of Warner Brothers mm-hmm. Records. And it's all studio dudes. And this guy Nooney Ricketts is doing all the singing, all three harmony parts. Wow. So and then he doubled like them, a, too. It's kind of like a, a studio band. Of course. Um, was that rare back then for a a, no. a, a producer to be on, on one label and then be licensed to do production yes. on another label? Yes, it was. Yeah. Uh, uh, th- no, that's why, you know, like so many people, I constantly am reading it, and it had been for years that I produced the Electric Prunes, and I never did. Passenger was the producer. He was also the engineer. He's a good engineer. He engineered Jefferson Airplane. That's how he got that gig. And release of a note. This uh, this also is produced by Dave Hassinger, but you said it's a different a different band on this. Oh one. yeah, it's Howard Roberts, Earl Palmer, Carol Kay, Lou Morrell. And a lot of those studio musicians were the same musicians that Phil Spector or Brian Wilson would use as well, right? Everybody used the same musicians. You From used on the Capitol. best. Yeah. Were you Listen, the only one to use Earl Palmer? Scale. You get it. And you get the best and the worst for the same money. So what the hell are you going to do? You know? Were you the only one to use Earl Palmer as your main drummer? No, I don't think so. Yeah, because it just seems like your stuff, although you use the same musicians, it had a different feel from, you know, maybe it was just the music Brian Wilson and, uh, and, uh, and Phil it's Spector was writing. You know? Yes, exactly. Phil Spector never wrote nothing. He could never write a note. Jack Nietzsche did the writing. Uh-huh. I've never been sure that wall of sound stuff anyway I think he just overbooked the studio because yeah. I've been to that studio at Gold Star and it's a small room it's, it's, this, it's this size for God's sakes he had 26 guys in there yeah. or 32 whatever and the poor engineer had to find some kind of separation between all the musicians yeah they were sitting at each other's laps it's crazy um, so the uh, Electric Prunes records actually happened before your solo records the mass did. Okay. And Livingston read about it. That for some reason, they did a page on it in Time Magazine. The Rock Mass. It's the first Christian rock record. Who could believe that? I mean, you know, now, now you get a Grammy for Christian rock. It has its own chart and billboard and all that. Amazing. That's the first <laughs> Christian rock record. That's awesome. That's so, awesome. uh... Livingston said I had to do an album for them and it's the one you're playing because I've always loved William Blake always and what year was this album released was it 1968 but I had been doing some arranging for Capital anyway and so uh, you did let's see three solo records with Capital yeah it was uh, Songs of Innocence Songs of Experience and Earth Rot yeah 
And what was this? What was the concept behind Earthrod? I think that's a pretty uh, ahead of its time concept. Uh, such an environmental record to come out such at such an early time. Earth Day, the first Earth Day was coming up, and what they were going to do was put this out on that day. And if you couldn't get it in stores, what Capital had done was they put it in all the the book stores, the college bookstores, at the hundred major universities. But as things would happen, they go in my life. Kent State happened, and every university closed for two weeks, and Earth Day went out the window. The the week that that was going to debut. <laughs> That Kent State thing happened. Yes, yeah. and when they came back, no one cared about the environment. They were a lot more jaded afterwards. Well, it was just all about Vietnam, and I can understand that. I don't know what made those lunatics use real ammunition anyway. What are you going to do? Well, let's take a listen to some something off Earth Rot. Maybe we'll even play one from the Electric Prunes record, and then uh, we'll come back and continue our conversation. It's dublab.com in studio with David Axelrod. Very excited, very excited. And here we are, Earthrot. In the beginning, in the beginning, God created, God God created and the earth, the heaven and the earth. And God said, and God said, light, let there be light, light, and there was light. And God said, and God said, the water began, the water began into a firmament, unto a firmament, and let the dry land, dry land appear. And God called the dry land earth, earth.
back on dublab.com in studio with David Axelrod promoting the special premiere screening of David Axelrod live at the Royal Festival Hall. There's going to be a Q&A and this is happening June 18th, which is uh, a week from today, right? At the Egyptian Theater. 6712 Hollywood Boulevard, Los Angeles. How was this concert or how did the concert come about that we're going to be watching that day? Well, uh, the guy that runs Royal Festival Hall that books it, Glenn Max, uh, he'd been trying to get me in there for quite some time. And we just couldn't get together money-wise. And then uh, my manager, Lisa Haugen, made it, finally made a money deal with him. It's funny because uh, I, it, it, was, it was sold out. And when I walked out on the stage, everybody stood up and started applauding, and I went, what the hell, the concert's over. <laughs> I might as well turn around and just walk back. How did you uh, select the track listing for what you were going to play that night? With great difficulty. Was it just you uh, combing through your stuff, deciding yeah. what you wanted to play, or, were, or did people have an influence on what, what no, they wanted you to do? Nobody influences me when it comes to music, ever. Good. The albums that have never made it, that I've made, that never quite make it, are because of people's opening their mouth to me. And if I'm going to do something, I don't want anybody to tell me anything. Just let me do it, and it'll make it. Usually, anyway, it usually does. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that. Mm-hmm. And they must have liked it, because there was a terrific standing ovation at the end that's awesome that must have been amazing it was it was a great thrill and i just said it's over <laughs> did you uh, i should retire right now did you foresee you know all of this coming back to you know the the music and stuff being reappreciated by a different audience or a new audience i should say i don't think anybody can foresee anything do you no but things happen and then i you know could go along with it that's great awesome um i guess one of the questions that i've been dying to ask you is when did you first when were, were you aware that you were being sampled by hip-hop artists from a statement that was sent to me by mpl uh remember i told you sir paul and john eastman own mpl and uh they own this music <laughs> anyway uh i got a statement on there is a song called without a doubt I'm not the most honest dude in the world, I'm going to tell you. But I'm also not dishonest when it comes to stuff like that. And I called this guy, one of the, just a terrific guy that works there at MPL in New York. His name is Peter Silvestri. And I went, Peter, I've never written a song called Without a Doubt. I don't want anybody else's money. I don't want you sending my money to somebody else either. So this has me a little nervous. He said, is that all it says on it? I said, yes. He said, just a minute. And he put me on hold, and he comes back, and he went, some stupid bra, there should be a slash mark. It's Holy Thursday. It's a sample. And I said, no kidding. That's not really what I said, but what I said I can't say here. (laughs) And uh, uh, that was how I knew I was starting to get sampled. All of a sudden, these statements were coming in with all these different song titles on them. That were being... uh being sampled by rap artists. Everybody. What did you think of it? What, what, I what thought it was opinion? great. Yeah. 
That's awesome. Especially when the first Lauren Hill thing came in. I thought that was really great. But then came Dre. And Dre tried to do that. I love Dre. Did he try to uh, not do the sample? Dre never tried anything. He doesn't. <laughs> so what were you saying? I'm saying with that sample, the, uh, is that? The Edge. The Edge. For McCallum. Yeah, Dave McCallum. How, was that something that was cleared initially, or did they have to clear it after you had found out about the use no, of No, I didn't know he'd done it until they were done with the album. Was that a rearranged piece? Like, did they replay nope, the parts? Nope, he it was just, just directly, directly off the record. off the album. But what he did is, what I use as an intro, he put it behind this section of the band. And it's uh, eight bars of music. And that he put on a loop, and it just loops. And he was very hip, like it's his, on his album, on, his, on, the, on the record. It was a single, it was the music behind his video. It was everything, and I love him, because it was a lot of money, man. <laughs> I mean, they sent me a lot of money. That was a huge song. Okay. Yeah, it was. And luckily, it was EMI Publishing, because EMI Publishing pays right on the money. That's great. And uh, through David Axelrod's usage of your music, you had met with him as well, right? Who? Uh, DJ Shadow. Yeah. He sampled me. Yeah. Um, the Human Abstract. I've never really let, uh, I told Peter not to charge him. And why is that? Because he's done so many things for me that why should he have to pay? And he would be liable. Because on that, that's not, that was before, I believe, uh, hold this a minute. B, that album. Where he's using that piano intro. Yeah. That was for Moax, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay, you'll edit that out, right? Yeah. Uh, it's not, you know, he's on Island Universal. If he was on Island Universal, then I wouldn't care. But it was on a small label called Moax, and uh, it was a dented shadow pocketbook. Because mm -hmm. I think that's the kind of deal he had. Yeah, it's a smaller label. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he's a cool guy. Or at least he always has been with me. Awesome. Well, um, anything else you'd like to uh, talk about the uh, premiere at all? It's going to be neat. Uh, it was a great concert, and I can't wait to see myself 20 feet high. <laughs> In you the know? Egyptian. Yes, because, you know, there was, a, there was a great, great screenwriter. Some people consider him to be the greatest ever. His name was Ben Hecht. And he wrote a book called I Hate Actors, and he was not joking. You know, he, he hated actors. And he was a director as well. And he said, the reason actors are the way they are, and the reason they're so affected is because they see themselves 30 feet high, and after a while, they start to believe that they are 30 feet high. <laughs> and I always loved that line. When I read it, I just broke up laughing. Is that going to happen to me, you think? I don't know. The Egyptian's pretty nice. Yes, it is. So it should be fun. It's a great concert. I think people will love it. I think so, too. And once again, it is the special premiere screening of David Axelrod Live at the Royal Festival Hall. We'll be showing this at the Egyptian Theater on uh, June 18th at 7.30 p.m. Um, it's 6712 Hollywood Boulevard. It's $15 general admission. 
12 for seniors and students. And for more info, there is davidaxelrodmusic.com as well as myspace.com slash davidaxelrod. Presented by our good friend B+, Mochilla, artdon'tsleepandublab.com, us. Well, thank you very much, David. Thank you, man. Had a My good pleasure. Time. All right, maybe we'll uh, end with one more tune. I guess, real quick, about the stuff from the 70s, it seems like it's still the same style of music, but because the technology had changed, the fidelity was, was a lot different than the, than the 60s recordings. Was that something you found like easy to transition to? A bit more tracks and just different things happening? I don't ever have problems with, music, with the music. I mean, it's hard to do. It ain't easy, that's for damn sure. But, uh, look, when I first started recording, it was two track. And I was very lucky because uh, Lou Rawls Live, Capital Studio A at that time, only had two track, uh, a two-track board. You could only record two track in there. So you had to record the band and the vocals, everything live? Yes. And uh, uh, we EQ'd. And whatever you put on, you can't take off. Yeah, you so print you, it. You better know what you're doing. Because you're making a master two-track right then and there. There's no overdubbing or uh, No, editing. no, no. Do you think uh, once the technology evolved, you know, throughout the 70s, that was a reason for maybe musicianship started to take a small dip? I don't know. I, I have no answer for that. I know that this is the first time in 600 years there isn't a really great living composer. Except maybe me, of course. But uh, <laughs> check it out. Just go through it. And I guess my last, uh, my last question would just be... Uh, you said earlier you're not really influenced by anyone when you're creating your music, but um, were, were there anyone that you, you you were kind of just like, maybe not influenced, but sort of like a, a musical hero of yours? Certainly. There's many. You know, when I said people that influenced me, I thought about personal managers. Mm -hmm. Business and stuff. Always seem to, or, or someone at a label will have, well, don't do this or try not to do that, you know. You know, just leave me alone, man, and I'll give you a record. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about like people like uh, uh, Stravinsky, mm -hmm. Schoenberg, Duke Ellington, and Gil Evans. Terrific influence, man. When you were making your music, those were. Oh yeah, nice. in the fifties. And an arranger named Gordon Jenkins, who is just so fantastic. Gordon Jenkins, God, he's fabulous. Listen to a record that he did with Frank Sinatra. And it's all about uh, getting old and dying. And Sinatra, I love the way he sings. Who doesn't? Mm -hmm. You ever know, you know, Miles Davis was influenced by Sinatra. He liked the way Sinatra phrased. And uh, Gordon Jenkins' arrangements on that album are just so incredible. One of our better drunks. <laughs> All right. Terrific well, guy. Ashley plays song number two. All right. Thank you very much. We're going to sign out. And uh, Thank you. Once again, the 18th at the Egyptian Theater, David Axrod Live. 
Well, it's the movie of David Axelrod Live. You're going to see him 30 feet high on the screen, and he's excited about it. All right. 